Give us a vision of yourself, O Lord, through the written and proclaimed word of God, bolstered by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of your people and your servant this morning. Father, bless us to know the deep things of God through the written and proclaimed word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. I'm going to read to you a short passage in the Gospel Tales. This is um, the third in my series, Gospel Tales, and I think you'll see why I I name it that as I go through these things, but um, this is the story of the ten lepers, and I'll read from verses 11 to 19 in chapter 17 of Luke. And so Luke writes, Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. He's talking about Jesus. It happened as Jesus went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a certain village, and there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. They lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. O Father, may our faith likewise make us well in the eternal sense, we pray, O Lord. Amen. So I would say to you that the passage is rather self-explanatory, don't you think? But let's look into it and let's go into some of the... uh, deeper aspects of it. We read first, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Now, if you're not familiar with the geography or with the customs, Jews did not um, generally go through Samaria. It was off limits. They were the half-breed tribes that Jews took no stock in. Remember the Samaritan woman? She she said that you have your temple where you say you should worship, and we Samaritans have ours where we should worship. She was talking about a literal temple in Samaria that had been destroyed a couple of centuries earlier. Uh, And so they had this disagreement. Jesus tried to tell her, doesn't really matter where you worship, it matters who you worship. And so he pointed that out. But just to give you... um, a little understanding of Jesus' sort of, how shall I say it, rebellious nature. He went straight through Samaria, and so um, these ten lepers came out. There was a, um, a leper colony in the vicinity, and these ten lepers heard of Jesus and came out. So the passage, the passage is typical of my notion of the gospel tales. And what, it, and what I'm trying to say here is Jesus is just walking along the way and things, and things happen. He's just going about his business. He, he's going to Jerusalem. So things happen and then he has to act. He's on his way somewhere, but he needs to pass through other places to get there. Samaria, of all places, 
is a foreign country of sorts. Most Jews would take the long way around it when traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. Jesus loves to go his own way, unafraid of social custom or popular disapproval. Remember when he talked to the woman at the well? One of the uh, verses says, and the disciples came and met him and were surprised that he was talking to a woman because a man and woman didn't talk alone in those days. Jesus broke a lot of customs. I preached a sermon on this passage in the year 2000. I knew that I had preached a sermon called Where Are the Nine? So I went back and looked up what I said in in that day. It was, well, 21 years ago, right? And um, so I'll quote and paraphrase somewhat from my old notes, but of course bring some of it up to date. But really, the message of the Word of God stays the same, certainly for 20 years, but it stays the same forever. As Pastor Bill read this morning from the Sermon on the Mount, Heaven and earth will pass away before the law of the Lord passes away. So I preached that sermon in the year 2000. I gave it the same name, Where Are the Nine? It could have been named by another verse in the passage. It could have been uh, named, As they went, they were healed. Now why would I say that? The Lord gave them a prescription. Remember when, he, when Elijah healed Naaman, the, or Elisha rather, healed Naaman the Syrian, which I'll refer to? He said, first of all, he wouldn't come out of his little hovel where he lived, and, and the great man, military man, rides up with his contingent with him, and he has his primary lieutenant with him, and the lieutenant runs over and talks to the prophet. The prophet wouldn't even come out and meet the great man on his horse, and he said, you know, my master has leprosy, Naaman, the Syrian, again, a foreigner, right? And Elisha said to the servant, tell him to go wash seven times in the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan is a muddy river. We think of the mighty Jordan. We think of it like the Mississippi. It's really not like that. It's this really, you know, river that's certain times of the year is is practically a trickle, and it's usually very muddy and unclear. So right away, Naaman takes issue um, with the direction, with the prescription of the prophet, he came to seek for help. Why'd you come to me if you're not going to do what I say? But, of course, Elisha doesn't even give him the time of day. He stays in there, gives him the prescription. And what happens? Naaman says, well, why would I bathe in that muddy river? I'm adding some stuff here for clarity. But why would I bathe in that river? We have great, wonderful, clean rivers up in Syria. I'll go up and bathe in one of those. And he names the rivers. And the servant said to him, you know, if the prophet told you to do some big thing because you're a great man, you would have gone and done it. Why don't you just take the simple advice and do what the prophet says, take the prescription, and dunk yourself in the river seven times. So, of course, he did it, and he comes out perfectly clean. He has a new faith. He has a new God. If you remember, he took some of the dirt from that place and put it in a container to bring with him. In those days, gods in the popular mindset had control over certain geographical areas. So he brought some of the geography with him so that the God would go with him. Look, he didn't know everything yet, but he really did know which God to look to for his healing. Well, something like that's going on here. Obviously, one of these guys is a Samaritan. Now, that's a foreigner, right? It seems, or it's implied, that the others were Jewish sons of Israel, right? We don't know for certain. 
But we could have called it, as they went, they were healed. Jesus didn't say, I heal you. He didn't touch them like he had previously done. He didn't give them a word of healing. He gave them a prescription, and they obeyed it. And as they went, they saw that they were healed. All right? So that's a point that, that um, we could focus on particularly here. Um, but the verse exemplifies the lesson of the gospel taught in the passage. And so I quote from my former venture in, in the year 2000. Though many receive favors from Christ, few receive Christ. Ten lepers received healing, one received the Lord. Ten cried out for mercy, one cried out in praise. Ten were blessed in this life, one was blessed with eternal life. Ten received a clean bill of health from the priest, and one received the commendation of the high priest. And that was really all that mattered. Let me tell you something. You might get healed of your leprosy, or you might not. But plenty of healed people find themselves in hell at the end of their lives, friends. Let's remember that. Verses 12 and 13. As he entered a certain village, there met him ten men. I looked at that several times, the wording of that in the New King James. There met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So far, so good. They recognize Jesus. They call him Master. The ten needy men have heard of the power of Jesus, obviously, or they wouldn't be there, right? Now, they didn't hear of the power in just any prophet. It wasn't any prophet in the land. We have... um, Nothing written in the Word of God that tells us that the previous prophet, John the Baptist, healed anybody. In fact, we're never told that he performs even a single miracle. So Jesus' fame was very distinct and heralded throughout the land, and these ten men had heard of that and came to him. They obviously believed in the healing power of Christ. But just so we're clear about the nature of their need and the desperation that they feel, we should look into the law of Israel regarding such things. You notice it said the men came, but they stood afar off. All right? Well, that's part of the law. And so we read from Leviticus, where it says, This shall be the law of the leper. Notice the, the, uh, the bold text there in your sermon notes. I added that in. Um, Moses didn't write in bold print. But... Um, I could have called this the law of the leper. Uh, This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall go out of the camp. Remember, they're in a colony. They're outside the camp. They're quarantined, friends. They're locked down, if you will, right? And the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest who makes him clean shall present the man who is to be made clean, and those things that made him clean, before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So it's in the law. You can't come back into society until the priest gives you an okay. So all Jesus did is say, go show the priest. It's almost as if he said, look, I have nothing to do with you. You have to go see the priest. That's the law. But Jesus said, go see the priest. That made the difference. And so there are very specific guidelines, as you can see from the CDC of Moses' time, with regard to just how one who is inflicted with the disease is to comport himself. You have to act a certain way, right? 
So the person is to be locked down, and that is separated from society. His only relationship with humanity is others who are likewise afflicted, right? They're quarantined. You've heard it said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. The sick friends, then and now, are separated from society. They must be declared clean by government officials in order to reintegrate into society. And so we read, he must cover his mustache, friends, and cry unclean. That's what they had to do. They had to tell everyone they were unclean. And the law reads this, Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That's quite a sentence, isn't it? So the leper's only hope is that a priest may agree to come to him into the colony outside the camp in order to apply a very specific and complicated cleansing ritual. I would have written it into the notes for you, but you can look it up. In Leviticus 14, it's just a very long ritual. It's a ritual um, that has to do with precise sacrifices, the sprinkling of blood, and several different washings that you go through. And if the priest agree, and it's a shaving of body hair and things, it's very specific. If the priest agrees to risk his own health and enter the leper colony, And if the treatment is seen to have worked, then the priest is given authority to declare him clean and to reinstate him into the fellowship of Israel. Now surely, this is what the ten lepers are seeking from Jesus. They want to get back to their lives, friends. Right? They want to get back with their families. They want to come back out of hiding. It must have been really a horrific experience to be a leper in those times. Now, surely they'd heard of the miraculous power of the Lord to heal. Surely they've heard of Elisha's cleansing of Naaman, which I spoke of. Surely, if the prophet of God would heal this foreigner, these Samaritans could call upon the prophet of their time to do the same for them. They said, well, Naaman was a foreigner. The prophet of Israel healed him. We're foreigners. Perhaps the prophet of Israel will heal us. And we read from the very beginning of Mark's gospel that Jesus was already known for healing leprosy. And think of the desperation that you would feel having that disease in that day, having it officially diagnosed, and all that you are and have been is gone, and you're removed to some ghetto in the wilderness, really. And so we read from Mark's gospel, chapter 1. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I'm willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Why didn't he do that here? The one leper came, Jesus touched him, it said, and he healed him with a word. But here, he sends the ten off. It was also unlawful for the man to, first of all, come out of hiding into a populated area to converse with healthy people. 
That wasn't lawful. Yet the Lord, it says, moved with compassion, Mark tells us. He heals with a word. This is the same God who called existence into being with a word. Let there be light, and there was light. Be healed, and they were healed. This is certainly a story that would have been heralded far and wide. And my guess is, it is this very incident that made its way into the leper colony of Samaria, where these ten men heard it and believed it. They probably heard the story. They certainly heard stories of healing. Verse 14, So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was, as they went, they were cleansed. So the Lord, friends, is above the law, but he does not flaunt his privilege. He abridges the law for mercy's sake, but he adheres to the law for righteousness' sake. And so it's the law of the land that until an ordained priest declares the leper cleansed, he's considered uncleansed, right? From the context, we can see that it is their reinstatement into society that's the goal of the nine lepers. They got what they wanted and didn't come back. Jesus is disappointed with this. So we see the Lord's willingness to prescribe treatment. Note that in Mark's depiction above, the Lord lays hands on the leper and says, be cleansed. And in this case, the prescription is different. The lepers are prescribed a journey. He doesn't even tell them that the journey will heal them. He tells them essentially what they already know. You have to be healed by a priest. You have to be claimed healed by the priest. And so they referred to this lawful ordinance. And in the acting upon that ordinance, their cleansing comes upon them. It's as if it's not immediate. On their way, they were cleansed. You know, immediate, I've, I've told you before, is Mark's favorite word in his Gospels. Not so with Luke. But we read, as they went, they were healed. Friends, that's sometimes how we receive our answers to prayer. We just stay in God's will. We do what he says. Verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, please note that, he's already healed when he goes back to Jesus. He saw that he was healed. That's what drove him back to Jesus. He returned and with a loud voice glorified God. Now there's a subtle play on words here. There were two Greek constructions used. The word for heal is iomai. It's used in every case where sickness is healed except for leprosy. In the case of leprosy, the word katharizo, cleansed, is used. So in verse 14, they were all cleansed of the disease, but the one, the grateful one, saw that he was healed, you see, or cured. So Luke makes what seems to be an intentional distinction. And so Jesus is able to say to him what he did not say to the others, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has healed you. They were all cured of the disease, but this man's faith healed something else. As we noted last week, there's a distinction between those who seek Christ and those who seek the blessings of Christ. Let me tell you something. If you're sitting in this room and you've never heard the gospel before, you are already receiving in your life the blessings of Christ. He's already showing you the same love he shows me. He makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. 
He makes the rainfall of the just and the unjust. We all have things to thank the Savior for, but how many of us will come back and thank Him and glorify God and recognize that the blessings we have are really not from our own hand, they're from His hand. So there's a difference between those who seek Christ and those who seek the blessings of Christ. Everyone wants the blessings, but not everyone wants the Lord. Now, our gracious Lord promises blessings, but as we said last week of Herod Antipas, remember this? He was appointed by Pilate to be one of the judges in the trial of Jesus near the end of his life. And we read this. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. Why? Because he saw the Son of God? No. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he'd heard many things about him and hoped to see some miracle done by him. He thought Christ a bit of a magician or an entertainer and was just hoping for a display. I'm royalty. People come before me all the time to uh, show me their talents. Maybe this prophet will do the same. Of course, Jesus <laughs> doesn't do those kinds of things. But So I should say that the nine ungrateful recipients of the cleansing miracle seem to be in this camp. Maybe I'll see some miracle done by him. So they came for favors. They came to be blessed. But they will not come to worship. They did not glorify God. Friends, there's very little, almost nothing, that we can really offer to God. But the one thing we have is worship. That's our relationship to God. The reason we were created is to worship God. How does the shorter catechism put it? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John records this principle in these words of Christ where he says, You seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the bread and were filled. You came for bread. You came for food. Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Friends, we may go to our graves completely healed. I know a lot of healthy people who died, by the way. You can die of a lot of things. By the way, because you don't hear this much in the media, you can die of other things besides COVID. I just want to make sure we, we remember that. That's not the only thing people die of. All right? You can die in a car accident on your way to get your second shot. I mean, it, it can happen. But we seem to forget these things. Religion is about death. You wouldn't need it if you were going to live forever. There'd be no urgency to figure things out. But there is. You have a short life and you don't know how short. That's only Christ knows, right? Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Friends, that's a pretty simple gospel. And that emerges out of the gospel tales. Every tale, every story in the gospels comes out with the same thing. He who believes in me has everlasting life. And then he talks about this bread disparity. Your fathers ate bread in the wilderness. He's talking about the manna. Remember the manna fed the children of Israel when they were in the, the desert because they had no way of getting food for 40 years, we're told. Manna came from heaven each day and all they had to do was gather it up. But it didn't get them saved. They ate it because they were hungry and there was nothing else to eat. Your fathers ate bread in the wilderness, and they are dead, he says. This is the bread which came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world, which we took in symbolic form this morning with the communion bread. So I dare say that nine of the former lepers ate the bread of miracles. But one ate the bread of everlasting life. Would you agree that that's the essence of the story? They all got healed. But only one really got healed. I wrote in my sermon notes in 2000 what is still true today, and so let me paraphrase from it. The message of the passage is clear. Though our earthly condition and our earthly infirmities may unite us, a moment's revelation of God unites us with him. And so I say that of the many physical and emotional and psychological infirmities that we may suffer, the Lord is able to render healing. But even if he has not done such things for you, he has given you a greater gift and a greater healing. I think we may all agree that it's good for a drunk to get sober. But remember, there's a lot of sober people in hell. It's good for an obese person to lose weight. But there's a lot of skinny people in hell. It's good to achieve worldly goals, to win races, to reach your personal best. But there are many accomplished people condemned for eternity. Your advanced degree is a wonderful achievement. But there are many smart people who go to their graves without the slightest understanding of the eternity that awaits them. All of these things are the blessings of God. But until you return to acknowledge Him, they will perish with you. There are many who receive their needs met in this life who have never even pondered their real need, much less their real solution. There'll be many in the land who will achieve gold this year. Yes, there are Olympics going on. (laughs) Many will achieve gold this year in their races or in their contests, but who will forfeit the gold that cannot perish? The apostle wrote of this very thing, that, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, or as he says, the gold which does not perish. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? So where are the nine? Now, I just want you to know, when Jesus asks questions like that, it isn't because he doesn't know the answer. He's, he's questioning us. It's sort of the Socratic method, if you will. The rabbis sort of followed the same method as, well, Socrates and the Greeks with this sort of question asking Uh, manner of teaching, but Jesus sends us each on our way with a blessing. And yet there are a few, maybe one in ten, who return to acknowledge him, to worship him. Now, I don't do the one in ten thing. I've heard some preachers say, no, it's ten percent will receive the Lord, and that's what this is teaching. I don't know that that's exactly what it's teaching or that we take it literally to that extent, but there's a small few. Many are called, it says, few are chosen, right? But scarcely one in ten will recognize the healer. They'll rejoice in the healing, but they won't recognize the healer. 
the mass of humanity are all afflicted with a spiritual leprosy that will separate them from the society of those who seem few in number, seem quaint and unsophisticated. They believe things strange to their ears and do things strange to their eyes, though they seem weak and inconsequential in their time, though their voices are silenced and their message ridiculed, will be those who stand in eternal triumph in Christ. So the mass of humanity are spiritually blind to who those people are who have actually received the ultimate blessing, the salvation of their souls. The nine or the 90% are satisfied with temporal blessings. Thank you, Lord. Go on your way. But the one or the 1% would gladly forfeit the blessing to stand next to the blesser. The nine thought the blessing was a gift. The one knew it was a test. The nine could not wait to fellowship with their friends. The one could not wait to fellowship with Christ. Put off fellowshipping with my old friends. I'm going back to the Lord. The nine went first to get proof of their vaccination card from the priest. The one went first to Christ for proof of salvation. The nine went to flaunt their newfound freedom. The one went to flaunt his newfound love. They rejoiced in what they saw, but the one rejoiced in what he now knew. The nine were glad of what they found. The one was glad of who found him. And what of the priest? You know, I always wish the evangelist would give us a sequel. Where's Luke's sequel? When they went to the priest, I want to know what happened when the priest saw them all cleaned, right? Now, they probably went to their respective towns, to their synagogues, where their own priest who knew that they sentenced him to the colony would now see them clean. And how did this happen? Surely the priest could see the result of their cleansing, but even he was blind to the result of their sin. So where's Luke's sequel to the story? Well, they don't always give us those things. I just make them up and, and, and give my, uh, my opinion. But where's the part where the priest says, who did this great thing for you? Take me to him that I too may receive his blessing. But we don't see that either. Even that other Samaritan, the woman at the well, after much less proof of his deity, knew her Messiah was in her midst. Now, you know what I'm talking about? Luke from John chapter 4. Jesus goes through Samaria another time. And the disciples are lagging behind, and he's off by himself, and he comes to a well. You know, these are dry, arid areas. There are well stops at different places, and you had to make your journey according to where they, where they are. And so he comes to this well. It's called the Well of Jacob, and it truly was. Jacob's well of some 1,500 years earlier. Jacob planted a well there, already ancient. And there's this Samaritan woman, or a foreigner, right? They're drawing water. And she has this conversation with Jesus. Now, it always amazes me that in those stories, they know who each other are. Like, she knows right away he's a Jew, and he knows she's a Samaritan. You could tell by the way they dressed or some custom that they had. For the most part, they were Semitic peoples who had the same sort of hairstyles and clothing. But somehow she knew right away he was Jewish. And she said, you don't, why do you have dealings with me? I'm a Samaritan. And they start having a, conversation about worship and where to worship and that kind of thing. 
And after much less proof of his deity, he didn't heal her of anything. She knew her Messiah was in her midst. All he said was, he said, go home and talk to your husband about this. She said, I don't have a husband. And he said something to the effect of, well, you spoke rightly. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. In other words, you're living in sin, but even now, your Messiah is talking to you. Even with just that much proof of his prophetic um, mission, she saw that he was Christ. And after a short theological discussion about proper modes of worship and a prophecy that she might have seen as a mere guess about her marital status, the woman saw the lordship of Christ. And so she said, or rather we read from John, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the man, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Friends, that's how faith works. You don't have to see Christ to believe in him. And, you, and let me uh, help you with the suspense here. You're not going to see him. He's been gone from the earth for 2,000 years. You're going to hear about him because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. So you're going to hear about the Christ and either rest your faith on the hearing of it or not. And that's what these all did. They believed because of the word of the woman who testified. Later on, Jesus does come in and they get to hear him firsthand, but they lived in that time. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas when he didn't believe the stories of the resurrection. And Thomas gave Jesus a test. He said, well, I won't believe until I put my hand in the wound and see the, and see the, uh, the injuries in his hands and his head. And suddenly Jesus shows up and he lets him do all that. And Thomas falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Thomas, because you have seen, but more blessed is he who believes who has not seen. That's us. So there's a lesson in passages like these that I hope we'll not miss. And so let's deal with a bit of the theology here. And it's this, friends. Our religion may inhibit our salvation. Now what do I mean by this? I mean that our religion or our core beliefs or our personal goals or our associations or our sense of personal morality. Most people think they're pretty good people. They can all work against our reaching right conclusions. Luke says it this way elsewhere. Jesus said to his own fellow Jews gathered in a synagogue, he said, but I tell you truly, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. There was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Friends, this was an insult to the Jews in the, in the synagogue. He said there were many... Well, he's talking about going back, to, um, going back to 1 Kings, where Elijah comes to the woman in Sidon, which is in Lebanon, not in Israel, and he said God sent his prophet to this foreigner to bless her. He said he could have sent them to the children of Israel. There were many widows here too, but he didn't do that. And then he continued with the illustration. He said there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, another foreigner. Now just so we can see how drastic 
and how caustic this saying was, we need to read the following verse where it says, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of a hill on which this city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. They were going to kill him for saying something against their beliefs, against their religion. Passing through the midst of them, he went his way. It was not his time. John gives us the simple explanation of this phenomenon. And he writes, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Their religion by that time, which should have pointed directly to Christ, was so corrupt when he came, they hated him and tried to kill him, and then they did kill him. John says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. To those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. What the Lord is saying is simple. You may not rely on your religion, or your customs, or your beliefs, or your personal lineage to save you. The true children of Israel are those who believe in Him. It's the message of the New Testament, clarifying the Old John the Baptist gave them this challenge to the Pharisees and Sadducees. You couldn't get more Jewish than these guys. He said, do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, we're saved because we're blood relatives of Abraham. He says, do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for God can raise up sons of Abraham from the stones. In other words, your Jewishness couldn't save you. In fact, it's hindering you. Your Jewishness in and of itself will not unite you in covenant with God. Neither will being a Catholic do it. Friends, neither will being a Protestant do it. Paul makes it crystal clear when he writes this to the Galatians. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He's quoting Genesis. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. That's us. We're the sons of Abraham. We're the ones he raised up from the stones. When your whole life is built on certain theological distinctives, it takes a great work of faith to jettison those long-held beliefs for simple gospel truths. But it's faith in those things, faith in him alone that saves. And when by revelation of gospel truth, truth rather, you gain your sight, you'll see that your former religion your long-held and cherished beliefs, your goals accomplished, and your beloved associations were nothing but a yoke upon your neck, keeping you from Christ. Paul said it this way, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Friends, our gospel is a simple gospel. One verse. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's the path. And he shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Friends, there is a judgment. It's faith in Christ that keeps you from the condemnation in that day of judgment. He's called your advocate. You know what an advocate is? It's a lawyer. And so the advocate stands 
with the defendant before the judge. And the judge says he's guilty. He's as guilty as every other man. But the advocate says, yes, Lord, but I paid for this one. That's the gospel. It's difficult because we want, we're like Naaman. We want something big to do. But it's something small. It's something in our hand. It's something in our path. Believe in Christ. Believe the word proclaimed. It's the faith of the one that drives him back into the presence of the Lord. He would rather go back to the Lord than run off and celebrate his new healing. And so Jesus said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Friends, ten were cleansed, but one was made well. If we're careful here, we'll see that it was not his faith that cured him of his leprosy, friends. He was already cured when he came back to the Lord. His obedience to the, to the prescription was what healed him and his other nine compatriots. They got healed too, right? They got cleansed too, I should say. They didn't have faith. But his faith, his genuine saving faith in the identity of the prophet was what drove him back into the presence of Christ. Faith may inform us of the power of Christ to heal, But it's not our faith that saves us in the final analysis, friends. It's Christ that saves us. Our faith is access to that salvation. Faith may lead us to seek favors from a proven physician, but Christ alone does the saving. Let's not forget that distinction. And so what's the simple lesson of the ten lepers? Well, it's this. Healing is a good thing. It's just not the ultimate thing. Right? Prosperity is a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. A lot of rich people go to hell. Fellowship with other people is good, but fellowship with Christ is the ultimate good. That's what's taught here. To know the source of our blessings is of so much more value than the blessing itself. Father, in Jesus' name, let us recognize the person of Christ, the source of all our blessings, the source of everlasting life. We pray in his name. Amen.